0: You massacre, you tear them to shreds. You're gonna pledge, you blood your religious to your dead You murder, you massacre, you tear them to shreds. You're gonna plus you plunge your religious to your dead Pillars of the community, pillars of the community, pillars of the
1: community, pillars of the community. of fucking jerks, just a bunch of fucking jerks, just a bunch of fucking jerks, scratch I got to know my I got to know to my I got to know how
2: to my Night listeners, welcome to an all new Iowa Basement Tapes. I'm your host, Christian Day, and I have a guest. I haven't had a guest in a while, um, which I'm actually really stoked about. Um, we've been talking about doing this for quite some time, and I didn't get a chance to meet up with him in person when I was in his neck of the woods travis atkinson um from centerville did i did i hit that correct you're from centerville
3: yeah yeah centerville iowa
2: cool okay um and uh, we're actually just opened the show with uh shane morelin um a band that uh uh, tr- uh a guy that travis recorded and you and you played bass with shane as well
3: uh i yeah, I did play bass on this one. Uh Shane was in a band called Rhinestone Rash that I ultimately played bass in, but initially they were just a three piece with a bass list and um then I recorded a bunch of stuff for him at the original Strange Bird, my studio. And then after that it kinda became apparent that I was like, Man, I gotta I gotta be a part of this and so I started playing bass for him. It was a very, very short lived band. They kinda imploded quickly, but you know, such as it was a, it was a bright f- flash of light, you know?
2: <laughs> and when, so let's, let's kind of backtrack here. So you have, um, you have a studio in Centerville and I, and, and actually I, I learned about you, you, you found the show and I think I played a Captain
3: Three Legs song that you recorded. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, man, this is a, about a year ago, really. Um, I, a little bit of backtrack from that i i'm from centerville but i moved away several well i guess about nine years ago uh to uh, nashville tennessee and uh did the studio thing there i had a strange bird there and um and i decided to make the decision to uh, move back a couple years ago so about two and a half years ago 2018 middle of uh spring of 2018 and anyhow um yeah, I was just for some reason I was just trolling around on something and I somehow came upon your podcast, you know, the the archives. And and I was going through it and I was like, you know, I saw all this Captain Three Leg stuff and a lot of stuff that Andy did, and um I was like, What the heck, man? And then I was like, wait a minute, I recorded some of this, you know? <laughs> and uh, I was like, Man, I gotta get a hold of this guy. He's he's you know, he's doing the Lord's work, you know, and like this is this is this is something I always wanted to see as a younger Musician, you know, see somebody documenting that stuff. So I, so I got in touch with you, and and uh, that's kind of how that all happened. Well, yeah. there's
2: been a, a this interest in Southern Iowa's music scene, and I would say specifically your era. And so I'm I'm really interested in what it, what, what was it like being into punk rock in like in the 90s in in Centerville, Iowa, and the, the whole Centerville, Ottumwa, like South Central Iowa zone. Yeah. Era.
3: Well, I mean, it was, you know, uh, I mean, it's the truest sense of making your own fun. Um, uh, we spoke the other day, and, and I, I think I mentioned the same thing. But, I mean, I, you're truly an individual that I, I, you're just truly separated from the your surroundings by being into that sort of thing. You know, um, I grew up skateboarding and being into hardcore punk, like, Minor Threat and Naked Ray Gun and, you know, Black Flag and all that stuff. And um, as a little bit of a setting, I'm I'm 44 years old. So, you know, as you know, I was when I first got into punk rock, I was like 16 ish, you know, and. uh, And so that changed everything for me, you know, just a a flip of the switch, you know, And, and immediately I wasn't interested in, you know, Def Leppard anymore, you know, or whatever. Whatever was being played on MTV at the time, back when they actually used to play music, and um, so that just immediately changed me. And I was skateboarding at the time, and that was skateboarding was not popular as it is now. Now it's just a bazillion dollar industry, you know. And back then it just wasn't. And it it definitely aligned with more of a punk rock kind of way of living. It, meaning that I don't mean that in like a gutter punk, you know, patches all over my jacket kind of thing. I, I mean that more in a um, there's an alternate there's a parallel universe of existence that you can partake in and kind of make your own path. And that was a very, very appealing thing, you know, that you can make your own tapes and you could you didn't have to be a great musician to be in a band And you could go and record at the local studio, save up a hundred bucks and book a couple hours or whatever. And that's entirely what like Andy Kettle was doing and and all those guys in Otumwa. In my town, none of that existed. Um, I, you know, I say this humbly, but I was probably one of the few folks doing anything of that sort in my area, you know, my immediate area. So um, I kind of maybe I was a bit of an anomaly. I don't know. You know, I just kind of I was always a person that just stuck my head down, did what I did, kind of followed my muse. And then kind of miles down the road, stuck my head up and was like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess I did do something. You know, I was always that guy. And i that's kind of still the way I operate.
2: (laughs) So so if if you wanted to catch a show,
3: a, how
2: did you hear about it? And where where did you have to go?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was um, I mean. I, didn't, I was a late driver, so I didn't get a car until I was 18. And quite honestly, I got a car so I could go to shows and go skating, you know. I could go travel somewhere and go skating. And Otomo was one of those places. And um, so it, the way I heard about shows was seriously going to Soundwaves in Otomo or whatever, going to some uh, record store and seeing a flyer, you know. Or going to a show and getting a handbill, you know, just the classic punk rock thing. Um, no one was really making zines at that time. I made a zine, but no one else that I knew of was making zines. So it wasn't that, but it was mostly, yeah, it was mostly going to shows just happening upon them. I would go, I would go to Iowa city, go in skating and I'd run into some kid and be like, Hey man, you're going to go to Gabe's later on and watch blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, you know? And next thing I know, I'm at Gabe's and meeting people. And, and that's, and it was, it was it really, it really was a special time, you know? Um, I I mean, we're in a special time now of being able to do all this stuff online and having such great connectivity, but there still is kind of a special thing that you just happen upon going to whatever record store and just happen to find this blah, 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 you know, and you know, I I do think that's still important even in this day of, of information. So
2: finding flyers in a tumwa for shows in Iowa city and, Des Moines, so I mean, people that which is actually, you know, nowadays I don't know if I would, if I think people would have the ambition of promoting something that far away. Well, it's really not that far away.
3: It's not that far away, but I I do see what you're saying. Um, But you know, if you're a band in Des Moines, you know, you're a young band, and you're just like, man, how how rad would it be if somebody from 100 miles away came to our show? And so I I suppose that that's why they made the effort. I don't know whether or not they hand drove them. Down to you know Soundwaves, or if they just mailed them to them, or you know if it was part of their thing where they sent five cassettes, you know, of their thing and and some handbills for the shows. I don't know how all that worked, you know, but but it was cool, man. It was really really cool, you know, and it was a real special thing. and And I remember going to Soundwaves and buying the This Is a Tiny Town cassette. You know, it was like a a Tumwa area compilation, and flipping the cassette over and seeing. Jack Mackerel Productions and that was like Mike Hoff I believe Uh, that was his label which was kind of a kind of a hand in hand thing with Andy's thing Mortville which he's still doing years later and you just see that stuff and it's just like I, I suppose some people might see it and not be curious about it and they're just like okay cool whatever but there's other folks you know and I'm probably in that camp where I'm just like extremely curious about that You know, I was like, what's that about? What are they doing over there? Like, that's 45 minutes from me. Wait, there's a phone number on there. I could actually call this guy, you know, all that stuff. Um, just, just endlessly exciting to me, you know, just like, you know, our, our conversation, you know, um, getting to know you a little bit, you know, it's, it's still, even at my age now, it's still endlessly exciting to make those connections
2: now you know you you mentioned to me the other day that you you're basically known as the recording guy um but you have obviously pl- played in bands you know what 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 interest came first was it performing or the the recording
3: uh playing but i will say I, I started playing when I was sixteen playing guitar um but quickly after that within a couple of years the recording bug kind of hit and it was just a curiosity. I wasn't like, I wasn't, you know, back then there wasn't the proliferation of internet information, you know, how to produce a record from your bedroom. There wasn't any of that. So it was just, it was truly just a boom box in the corner, recording yourself playing guitar. And, and then I started going, I, I went to Indian Hills here, the local college right out of high school. Cause that's what you're supposed to do. Right. So I did that and of course I got the student loan and immediately I was like wait a minute I have 1200 bucks or whatever you know and um I was like I'm gonna buy a recorder (laughs) so you know that started a long uh path of doing buying stuff that I shouldn't buy with money that should go towards other things you know (laughs) and uh so I bought my first recorder from this studio that was selling their old recorder from Bloomfield the studio called Mind's ear and um, who recorded some of the early, whatever, early punk rock and whatever stuff from around here. Um, So I bought their recorder. It was like two grand, 2200 bucks or something. I got a loan with my mom for the rest of it, you know, (laughs) and um, I bought that thing and I was, I was just enamored by it and I had no idea what I was doing. I was truly clueless, but with that cluelessness came with came a, And excitement and and, uh, willingness just to record. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. That stuff sounded horrible. But I just recorded my ass off, you know, and just went for it. And that really, really gave me a love of recording. And then several years down the road, I kind of had a little plateau of, like, of seriousness, you know, and, like, wanting to really figure it out. And then another handful of years down the road, I really, really wanted to see if I could do this, you know.
2: And I didn't even know Bloomfield had a studio either. This is a whole side of the world I never knew about.
3: Yeah. I think a lot of people were like that way, you know, and and I'm, I, I'm sure that my little studio was certainly in that same category. You know, no one knew why would, you know, why would somebody in Centerville, Iowa, a town of maybe 6,000 people have a studio let alone have a studio that, you know, dare I say is kind of semi legit. You know what I mean? Um, this was prior to everybody having a laptop and an interface too, you know? So if you're going to have a studio that's halfway decent, you really got to be in it to win it, you know?
2: Well, let's, um, you know, let's actually start to work towards your next song here. Um, cause the, the bands that you've picked, I've, I've only played, I think mama I may have played Jake, <laughs> Jake book before, I think once, maybe okay. once, but mama is probably the only one, but you have the stuff that you have here. Uh and and forgive me grand old lady I know they did the split with with um Billy Crystal mess but I had no idea that they were actually from a, a Tumwa as well
3: Oh really Yeah yeah um Aaron the drummer um Nick the singer they kind of had a cast of characters through the years so you know I don't want to forget anyone but but uh yeah they were always kind of uh you know they were a little bit younger they're like Actually, I don't even know how old they are. Early thirties, maybe, maybe mid thirties. I'm not sure. Um, and they're always just like younger dudes that kind of, from my viewpoint, they kind of admired like what Andy did. Kind of the more, a little more out there, kind of nerdy. You know, just kind of almost making fun of yourself and the situation. Kind of bands, you know, kind of like Accelerator, you know, and um, and so they kind of came out of that that scene. And, honestly, I don't know what years this was. Maybe the late 90s. Probably was. Late 90s, early 2000s, maybe. It's crazy to think it was that long ago. But, um, yeah, they kind of came out of that scene. And they're, you know, they're up there playing. You know, you could tell that they were into metal. They were into, like, technical music. But, at the same time, they really liked Mario Brothers, you know. <laughs> and they really like video games and, and math. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um so they kind of, they're like, well, whatever, we'll just combine the two. And so they, they did this really wacky stuff. And when you go and see them play, you're like, you know, if you if you didn't have a sense of humor about yourself and if you took things real seriously and you, your favorite band was Boston or something, you know, <laughs> you would see this band and just write them off immediately. But it really would, in my view, it wasn't really about that. It was just kind of a, it was a band that was, enjoying what they're doing, having fun with it, not taking themselves too seriously and just kicking out the jams, you know, and playing shows. And that, that was, that was entirely what it was about for me.
2: You know? Cool. That's what that was. Cool. Well, here's grand old lady, uh, with Mario brothers right here on Iowa basement tapes.
1: gentlemen you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this theater this picture truly one of the most unusual ever filmed contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset we urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance that you and the child Leave the auditorium for the next 90 seconds.
2: Night, listeners, welcome back to Iowa Basement Tapes. You just heard Rhinestone Rash with the song Bleak, Cruel Weeks. And my guest, Travis Atkinson from Centerville, talking about uh, his time in the scene of uh, Centerville, Otumwa, the southern Iowa region, and uh, his studio, Strange Bird. Um, obviously, this is a great conversation, an area of Iowa that has not gotten much love and uh, has a very rich... Uh, DIY history. Um, tell me about Rhinestone Rash, um, and you kind of debriefed me a little yeah. bit. This was this was kind of a deal back in the day.
3: I mean, you know, again, Rhinestone was kind of a flash in the pan, unfortunately, which is kind of the case. I'm biased because I did play in the band at the end of it, but man, I was a, I was a fan of those guys, and I knew the I knew two of the three people that were in the band. I knew the guitar player and the and the drummer Tate Avery. And, um, but man, I saw those guys play at some, sh- talk about, a, you know, small show. I saw them play in, I don't know, some Plano Hill or something, some small town right up the road from me, you know, and, um, I saw them play at some VFW hall or something like that. And it was, a, it was one of those things where I was like, everybody was just not into it. And, um, and I was just like, man, this is insane you know, it was just like, it was dangerous, like good punk should be, you know, it was like dangerous. It felt kind of unhinged. And it was like, you just played by people that just did not care what the audience thought, you know, I was like, man, this is great. And so I approached the the guys. And um, I was like, man, let's record something. It's like, I don't even care. Let's do something we got we got it. We've got to document this, you know, and I think a big part of the recording thing for me, even though, you know, it's my, it's my discipline. It's my craft, if you will, if you want to get hoity toity about it. But, but, um, but on this, on the, the biggest human level of it is, it's, it's about documenting stuff. So it doesn't go away. Um, sure. It's nice to have good recordings and blah, blah, blah. But, but really it's about documenting it, whether it's a boom box in the corner or, or a fancy studio or whatever, anything in between. And for those guys, I was like, I've got to document this because um, it kind of seemed a little volatile, you know, <laughs> and and it could go away. And it did. But um, but, yeah, I recorded those guys uh, several of their tunes and um, and it just became super obvious. I was like, man, they need they need to have a bass player. They need to have like a full rhythm section, you know, instead of just a guitar player and a drummer trying to lock in. And Shane Moreland, the guitar player, was really into X and kind of cowpunk kind of stuff. And, um, man, it just had this real urgency and earnestness about it, you know? And, uh, and so, and Turner, the um, singer, you know, I don't think he would be offended by saying, you know, he was kind of the anti singer, you know? And, um, And it was just such a cool combination, and uh, I wanted to be a part of it, and so so I started playing bass with him and started practicing, got the tunes down. We played three or four shows, and uh, that was it. (laughs) What uh,
2: was there much of a like a tape trading or, I mean, this is I think this is just before CDRs became a thing. Yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, was there much of trading each other's tunes? back in this era what
3: was the network like it was largely show-based i feel you know because again nobody had computers in their house at that time uh this was just pre-internet and um so it really was it really was it really was show-based you go to a show and you get somebody's tape or if they were fancy a seven inch you know this was when vinyl was definitely dead you know and so um not very many people. Andy was one of the few people putting out records in the area, you know, some seven inches. And uh but yeah, it was really pretty much that. It was uh the tape trading really was I don't know if there's much trading going on. It was more so you go to the show and you buy the five dollar cassette or whatever, or you go to Sound Waves. I gotta say, Soundwaves was a uh to me, it was a real integral part of it. I, every time I'd go to town to go skating or whatever or to go to a show, I would, I would go early so I could go up to Soundwaves and check it out and see what they have in their local bin, you know? And I would see stuff that Andy was putting out or the whomever, you know? Uh, Jason Bollinger had a record label. You know, Jason is the drummer in uh, probably most famously the drummer in She Swings, She Sways, and he was in Rusty Metal Primer, I believe, and a number of other bands. He's in X Ray Mary now.
2: X Ray Mary, yeah, I was gonna say. And uh, I mean, I've 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 communicated through uh, with Jason from the film in- industry side.
3: Right, right. Big horror guy. Yeah, he j- he just came to the studio about a month and a half ago. He played on a a, a track for a couple tracks for a, a local artist from Oskaloosa named Brittany uh, Bedford or Brittany Sword. <laughs> Brittany Sword, I guess, is her name. Um, but yeah, he just he was just in the studio like a month and a half ago. So,
2: you know the the record store, Soundwaves?
3: Yeah, I mean it's been it's long defunct. It's been gone, you know, for a long time. But it was a pretty happening spot. In I mean, the what 90s were they getting sure. in
2: there? What were they? I mean, because I remember growing up, we had Relics Records in Cedar Rapids, which was the big deal. And obviously, yeah. if, you, if you you remember, you probably remember Relics and um, Sal's.
3: Yeah. Wasn't there a Bees or something? Bees? Uh,
2: something? I don't remember Bees. I mean, I remember going to Record Collector, which is still open in Iowa yeah. City. Um, but Soundwaves, I mean, what, what were they getting? I mean, were they getting a lot of, like, I mean, the thing about Relics for me, because that was like my, my introduction to punk rock and metal. And yeah. black, I, I could go to a store in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and buy black metal, which in... For me, in two thousand one or nineteen ninety nine, was a huge deal because I—I mean, I'm like 14, 15, not knowing where to find this stuff, and the fact that I could find it in a store was—was yeah,
3: sound—was exactly. sound waves very similar? Yeah, I would say it—it it was. Yeah, um, just like every record shop that has to pay the bills, you know, they're—they're they're gonna have a warrant record as well, you know, but or whatever, you know, they're gonna have a Mariah Carey jam, but. They, they, they had a great selection of, of indie and, uh, underground stuff, not just underground, but they, man, they had a really, really great import section you go in there. They'd have tons of great imports. And, um, that was actually quite a bit of what I bought as well. you go there and they'd have like, whatever, you know, the, you know, of the era, a lot of Jane's addiction type stuff, you know, and, and, uh sonic youth and and all that sort of thing a lot of great imports so it was a really to me it was a really important spot and it was like i remember you know it was of the era where like oh the new beck album's out you know this is like early beck like oh i'm gonna order a copy of the new beck album then i'm gonna drive over there (laughs) and pick up the album and then talk to the person behind the counter about how great this album is you know and you know the social aspect of record shops you know can't be understated or overstated so um that's entirely what it was for me it was great
2: do you uh do you remember going to i mean i'm not sure if they had this here we had them in cedar rapids if you go to like a cd warehouse and they had their quote-unquote import section which was actually a bunch of bootlegs and it would be like these live live quote-unquote albums that were like handmade and circulated and they were all i remember them being ultra expensive
3: Yeah, some of them were for sure. They would have like some crappy, some off photo, you know, from they got from wherever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there'd be like 28 bucks or something or more than that, you know. Stupid
2: You know, because I was into at that time. I was I was like really into Skinny Puppy, and this is before Skinny Puppy became a band again, and well, were terrible after they regrouped. Um, but they, they defined those '80s live recordings when I was like 15, 16. You know, and pre pre being able to get whatever on the internet. You know, or before all the bootlegs showed up on YouTube and all the and all the file sharing places. Uh, it wasn't like you could find it super easily
3: so you take what you could get you know so you go in there and you you'd you'd see the skinny puppy cdr with the crappy cover for 28 bucks you're like man where else am i gonna get this and they have two copies they're probably not gonna have it next you know what i mean (laughs) you know what i mean so you would do it you'd pull the trigger you know (laughs) i did that many times and there's probably some dude with like the early purple external memorex
2: cd burner it was like cranking them out uh, an hour and a half at a time because it takes forever to burn a CD <laughs> back
3: in those days.
2: Um, now, did Soundwaves, did they host shows too?
3: Uh, maybe, but I don't recall that, you know. Um. I was still a little ignorant. It was, it was truly, I think the sound waves thing for me, cause I took guitar lessons from a guy named Chris Hunter who also had a studio studio 16 that recorded some of the early Andy stuff. Like I think he recorded the forced expression stuff. Um, anyway, Chris Hunter's a great figure as well. Um, but I was taking lessons from him when I was like, I don't know, 19 or 20. And so that was part of the thing. I would go, I'll go to a tumble one time a week get my lesson, cruise up to Soundwaves, go down to Newsland and buy a recording magazine or something, go to McDonald's and get some fries, <laughs> you know, you know, whatever. And that was my day. And I kind of looked forward to it, you know, and uh that was kind of how it, it worked. So I, as far as shows go, I don't know. That's a long winded answer, but I, I'm not sure about the shows.
2: Let's go back to your, your song selection here. Um And uh i would love to man do we do we jump into mummifier i don't know do we (laughs) (laughs) i kind of want to but because i'm actually mummifier uh i was really interested in when i discovered it and uh i don't know know. much about mummifier although i'm trying to track down a physical release uh, of theirs
3: um oh it came out on cassette i have a copy of it on cassette I it, it, are there multiple copies that you know that may exist somewhere? I don't know. I don't I don't know if Andy released that or not. He may have. I I was just given one by the band. I'm actually not sure. I'll I'll look and see where it's from. I'll ask Andy. I talked to Andy yesterday, actually.
2: Yeah, you know oh. Andy you know, I remember I was at his house and I asked him like I'm looking for these albums that you've put out and he's like I don't have them. And I'm like, "Well," he's like, "I don't keep any I don't I don't keep extra." Although, I mean, Grant, I have Stacks of Mortville releases here, even ones I never ordered. I somehow <laughs> acquired. Um, but Mummifier I thought was really fascinating. So, what do you, what what can you tell me about this whole thing?
3: Um, Mummifier was kind of let's see. Mummifier was kind of a combo of Grand Old Lady and members from Grand Old Lady and. Billy Crystal Meth, who I also recorded. Which we should probably, we should talk about the recording of Billy Crystal Meth at some point, even though I didn't give it as one of those songs. But, um, so Billy Crystal Meth happened for a couple years and then imploded, I guess. And, and at the very end of B, of BCM, I don't think Alan is on any of the recordings, but they had a second guitar player near the very end of BCM. I don't know if you're, if you knew that. No, I didn't. Um, yeah. Uh, I feel horrible. I can't think of Alan's last name <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, But they had a second guitar player uh, named Alan that kind of came in as a, as a live player and he didn't play on any of the, uh, of, the of the albums. I, we, we just did meth metal, the full length. And then we did an EP that was a split with, with grand old lady and Alan didn't play on either of those, but Alan was still in that band when they, when they stopped it, you know, they ceased to exist and grand old lady wasn't really doing anything at the time. And so Alan's love for like classic thrash metal kind of led the charge in a way. And so it was the drummer from grand old lady, the the main singer, keyboard player, Nick. Oh, and the bass player, um, which is, uh, the drummer's brother. (laughs) And, um, and then it was Alan and Andy from BCM, and that was Mummifier. Um, and so the idea was—I I, I certainly wouldn't say the, the idea was a super group type thing. <laughs> that's that's kind of a little silly, but but it was a it was a kind of a, a good marriage of those two two bands. But but also it kind of got down to the roots of like these two bands that kind of respected thrash metal, all of a sudden forming this thrash metal band and like kind of no bones about it and um that's what it was it was just like fairly fast not highly technical but fairly fast riffage and um you know cookie monster vocals via nick blast beats via aaron the drummer you know and that was it you know and so we rec- we recorded the full length at strange bird the first one when, you know this was when i first still lived in iowa before i moved and um, yeah we recorded it I believe man I want to say we recorded it all the backing tracks all in one day and then we did overdubs the next day I want to say and then that was it then we mixed it and that was an all analog recording it was on a 2-inch 16 track machine and um, yeah that was it it was cool
2: sick. All right, here we go with Mumma Fire the song Full Blast right here on Iowa Basement Tapes
4: Gentlemen, an extraordinary journey into the unknown awaits you. The unimaginably weird, dark universe of ESP, extrasensory perception, crashes into the mysterious depths of black witchcraft in a strange and mysterious motion picture unlike any you've ever seen. Something weird. Gifted with psychic powers even he cannot understand, This man finds himself catapulted into the supernatural, a world in which magic and witchcraft battle for supremacy with powers ordinary men could never understand. Around this beautiful girl whirls a maniac's bedeviled list of questions. From these eyes spurts a savage curse that kills anyone in its way. Where love and violence have the same meaning, where the flesh can be exquisite, or hideous, where forces far beyond the cosmic smash together in a collision that can shatter the heavens. Only a madman could understand it all. Only a wizard or a witch could bring about its astonishing conclusion.
2: listeners welcome back to iowa basement tapes i'm your host christian day and i'm with my guest travis atkinson from strange bird studios in centerville and you just heard jake book wake up my darling this is part of travis's uh iowa playlist and uh, we've been talking about uh, a centerville bloomfield the entire southern iowa central southern iowa scene um jake book who is still very active and this was very much a departure from the, the crazy stuff we heard earlier and mama fire, uh, rhinestone rash and all that other stuff. Um, what, what can you tell me about Jake book? Cause I've played him on the show. He kind of has that William Elliot Whitmore vibe to him.
3: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, he's Jake is a uh, man. Jake is like 29. I think he's almost 30, you know? So to give you a reference and, um, I met Jake at a well. I met Jake at a show in Otumwa. and um. And he was a young kid, and just I mean, he was like 16, and young kid, super exuberant about things. And he heard about me somehow, and he was just like all up in my shoulder, asking me questions, you know, just real excited, you know, and um. And so we chatted, you know, exchanged numbers, and and he just lived a town over from me, this little bitty drive-through town called Numa. And he lived in the deep country with his parents, and uh, again he was sixteen, you know. And so, so anyway, he came over, came over to the studio, and was kind of, kind of blown away, I guess, you know. And um, I, because uh, he, at a younger age, even um, he was kind of thrust into that whole Nashville, come down, boy, and let's make you a demo the way the big boys do, and and he got thrust into that and recorded a couple songs, apparently when he was like 13 or 14 or something. And it really, really turned him off to the idea of recording. And so he comes into my place and it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's got a tape machine, a mixing console and, and it just feels mellow, you know, and he was really turned on by that. So we kind of ended up being lifelong friends. So I immediately started recording him. And at that time, you know, he was recording, Chick James about whatever girl he was courting you know (laughs) and you know and and uh but as as he grew grew up man he really kind of became a force to be reckoned with like his his voice got better his playing he's always a good player and but man he he's always been a big fan of history and um and he just dives deep into that sort of thing and just a lot of You know, I think most people just call it old timey, but I'm sure there's a ton of uh, subcategories just like metal, (laughs) you know, Um, but man, he's just got something about him. When you see him perform, it's just like it it feels like you're watching a punk rock show and that he just has this real deep heaviness about him, you know, and not necessarily an overt seriousness, but just this real heaviness, like this real earnestness. And I wanted to be a part of that. And so I recorded a lot of his stuff, and the song that you just played was part of a a series of songs that he recorded in Nashville when I was living there, and when I had a studio there, he was coming through town, stayed with me for whatever a long weekend or something, and we bashed out a bunch of songs so i I want
2: to talk about your your brief stint in Nashville um why you left, why you came back
3: yeah yeah that's you know that's an understandable curiosity because um I moved to Nashville in 2011 and I came back in 2018 and you know um, uh, my reasons for going were personal my reasons for coming back were personal and it's not something I'm not willing to share but um, but I it it really boils down to on both sides the coming and leaving um, it kind of boils down to just being curious and not being able to avoid that curiosity any longer. Like, I just wanted to see what I could do. Um, I was working at a factory, classic small town thing. <clears throat> and um, I just had to see what I could do. Like, I built the first Strange Bird, and I recorded all that stuff with Andy and all those bands. And I realized that I was I kind of had more of a knack for it than I gave myself credit, I guess. And, um, and so I was like, man, I got to see what I can do. And so that's why I made the move to Nashville. And and I was really, really fortunate there in that um a lot of folks would make that trek and they would go there and, you know, they would have to work a full time job and and record crappy bands on the side. And that's part of the gig. That's I'm fine with recording whatever. But you know, you have to record Billy Bob's blues band for the hundred and fifth time, you know, and, and and um a lot of people get a little uh downtrodden from that experience but for some reason i'm i'm extremely thankful um and hashtag blessed to have uh done the things that i i did in the short time that i was there and so i was able to get into a lot of doors for some reason were open to me and um i was able to record some cool folks and get a chance to meet a lot of great folks and and Really operate amongst my peers, you know, amongst people that make records that we own, you know, and and I was really lucky, and and it was going well, and um, I wasn't really necessarily desiring to leave Nashville, but I was getting a little bit older, and I kind of I was seeing the the gentrification of Nashville. It's such an age old thing, but. Um, it really was happening heavy, hot and heavy in Nashville, and I was seeing stuff around me in my area, even um, on my street. I was seeing things getting built, um nice, nice apartment complexes right at the end of my street and right up the hill from me, you know, within a year and a half's time and And I kind of started seeing the writing on the wall, and um it's like, man, I was renting, you know, and if my landlord decided to sell this building. Which he absolutely should. Um, what would I do? And and the answer is I would have to either go rent another place for probably three times the money, and then I would be stuck recording a bunch of stuff I didn't want just to make ends meet financially, or or I would have to go and buy some fixer upper for three hundred fifty grand, <laughs> you know, and. Also be in debt until I'm 80 years old recording bro country for a living, you know, and not trying to be negative about it. But I was like, man, that's just not really my idea of freedom, you know, and um, all the while I own this piece of property that I bought off my father about 11 or 12 years ago now. And I own this piece of property here in Iowa and I didn't have a chance to do to do anything with it. And it was kind of getting to me. I was like, you know, I do have the option to go back home and live way cheaper and do the same thing, albeit in a different, uh, different environment, different, uh, can't think of the word I'm trying to, to say, but, uh, But so so I kind of, but also, uh, again, I was getting older and my parents were getting older. And I kind of wanted to be around my parents while they were around. And that turned out to be a good decision because um, unbeknownst to me and my family, my father uh, was ill. And my father ended up passing away two months after I moved back. And, you know... I can't imagine what that would have been like having to navigate that while having to pay rent every month to a studio in Nashville and having to be up here to be, you know, with my parent. And, you know, I can't imagine how that would have, you know, played out had I not been here. So that alone, aside from all the studio stuff, um, that was reason enough. Albeit, it wasn't the reason I came back because I didn't, you know, we didn't know about the illness. So, um, you know, not to get all you know bummer on everyone, but um, that was that was that was a big heavy one, you know. And um, and so after that happened, I was kind of left, you know, dealing with that emotional backlash, but also figuring out what I was going to do for the next Strange Bird, you know, because I didn't come back here to work at a a job job if I could avoid it. <laughs> well, and you didn't. I mean, you've the I mean, Strange Bird. Guy? It's a thing again.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's a thing again, and it's alive and well in ways, I think, in, in, a, in a
3: huge way, really. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, um, I ended up building the next Strange Bird. And, you know, these things take time, they take money, and I have more time than I have money. But I also, thankfully, again, thanks to my father, actually... Um, I have some skills that I can, you know, I can build my own place, you know, and I'm thankful that I'm able to do that because I realize not everybody is able to do that. Um, so, so I spent the last year and a half to two years building the next strange bird kind of almost exactly the same as the first one. The first one took about two years. <laughs> so this one kind of took about the same. Um, unfortunately it was kind of finished right around the COVID thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's a different type of navigating things, figuring out how to record people responsibly and and you know people having the the ability to record financially. but'm I'm, I'm making it work and I'm considering other things. Um, I'm actually going to meet with a, a woman that has a music store in Oskaloosa this Friday and going to talk to her about the idea of doing a kind of a satellite strange bird to help out the kids there that are um, being you know it's basically a lesson center you know and so when they're done taking lessons they can you know graduate and have a recording you know and kind of just kind of share the stoke you know to these kids and that's kind of that's a big part of the studio really it really is
2: to close us out tonight um i want to i want to play this last one this was actually a band that you had and i know you say as a joke but I think it's important because
3: yeah. Yeah. This was just, this was pure, pure childishness. This is Tate and I going out skating at two in the morning. It's turbo hot out. We're skating. And, um, there's a, there's a street light beaming light down on this curb that we're skating, you know, and having a good session, sweating away. And me, as the juvenile person, you know, that I always will be, um, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the ground and I'm like, man, that's a big old shadow. And I'm like, Hey, stick my finger out. Got a shadow Wang. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, there's no better reason than to write a song about this immediately. So we we went home, went to my place, recorded the song, shadow Wang. (laughs) Instantly, and but but at the same time we're like, man, we can't have a band called Wangs so with the word Wang in it. So, what do we do? White Shang, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, right? And, and so,
2: and yes, you can. You can so, have a band called Wang. No one will tell you, you no. You can,
3: yeah, yeah. You would play it, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of questionable <laughs> things that I end up, I'm like,
3: uh, <laughs> uh
2: and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say this before we close it out, but one I actually had to call one of the radio stations to talk to him about was the band C.R. Dicks from Cedar Rapids, and mm. uh, they're spelled with the letter C, R for Cedar Rapids, Dicks, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. their first album was called Go In. And um, right. it was a discussion that we had to have. So, right. uh, anyways, <laughs> Wade <O'Shang>, uh <laughs> to close this out, I want to thank my guest Travis Atkinson for coming on the show, and what a great discussion! And I think there's going to be more thank you. with uh, the, the 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 Southern Iowa music scene. There's more to be discovered here. Um, until okay. next week, everybody. Good night. And uh, be safe out there. Mm Iowa Basement Tapes is produced by Christian Day Media and is distributed across the state of Iowa on community and public radio stations. If you miss a show, be sure to subscribe to the podcast archives on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play.